Revolutions Per Minute is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, recorded live at WBAI 99.5 in Brooklyn every Tuesday at 5. RPM is about doing the work, the work to build a democratic socialist future. Every week, hear the latest news, analysis, and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in NYC. Join the movement at socialists.nyc. Yo, what's good, New York? You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute, live from the new WBAI studios. We're a socialist radio show and podcast for members of the New York City Democratic Socialists of America. The DSA is the largest socialist organization in the United States, with 70,000 members nationwide. And NYC DSA is its biggest chapter. We are run by our 5,500 plus members and organizers who are working together to build democratic socialism in all five boroughs. The American labor movement is at its most powerful when it is fought for more than just bread and butter, but rather has actively struggled against the racialized division of labor that is at the core of capitalism in the United States. Unfortunately, unions have not always committed themselves to the anti-racist cause, but have also served as a force for exclusion and reaction. In the 21st century, women of color in the public sector are the fastest growing sector of unionized workers. However, at the same time, police unions are still protected by the AFL-CIO. What is the way forward for the anti- for anti-racists in the labor movement? I'm Jack Devine, he, him pronouns, and today we'll be discussing this question. We'll hear from postal worker and labor organizer Dennis O'Neill on their struggle to save the post office from privatization. Later in the show, Robert Cuffey from the NYC DSA labor branch joins us to talk about the role the labor movement can play in the struggle for black lives. But first, the headlines. State Senator Zelnor Myrie has proposed legislation that would prohibit evictions and foreclosures for a year following the lifting of the COVID state of emergency. State Senator Julia Salazar introduced a bill to eliminate the testing requirements for the city's specialized high school, which many blame for keeping black and Latino students out of those schools. The bill would allow the city to set its own admissions requirements starting in 2022. New York Attorney General Letitia James issued a preliminary report on the NYPD's handling of protests in May and June, refusing to conclude that police acted inappropriately. Even her calls for a tepid oversight commission were dismissed by Mayor de Blasio. Privacy advocates are pushing for legislation to ensure that data collected for purposes of contact tracing cannot be used by any law enforcement agencies, including ICE. And in election news, the city has finally begun counting its absentee ballots, a process that is expected to take weeks. Over 400,000 ballots were returned citywide. By comparison, roughly 500,000 people voted in person on Election Day. But some ballots may be invalidated for improper postmarks. Gotham Gazette has a breakdown of where competitive races stand going into the count. Gotham Gazette interviewed Jabari Brisport, who was on the verge of victory in the state Senate District 25 race. Queen's Chronicle covered the apparent victory of 24-year-old Khalil Anderson's insurgent campaign for Assembly District 31 in Southeast Queens. And finally, Damon Meeks, no apparent relation to Gregory, and Sarah Clark won two working family parties-backed assembly races against the local Democratic machine in the Rochester area. 
Our daily headline, our weekly headlines are brought to you by The Thorn, an incredible weekly newsletter by NYC DSA Electoral Working Group covering local politics and radical activism. Subscribe at thethorn.nyc. So now we're going to tr- transition into a pre-recorded interview that Amy Wilson put together over the weekend. For decades, the United States Postal Service has been a reliable employer for black Americans. But now the Postal Service is under threat of privatization. Let's hear more from a comrade. Take it away, Amy Wilson. Good evening. Thanks so much for speaking with me on Revolutions Per Minute. I love it. Um, I'm in favor any way you want it. 33 and a third, 45, 78. Totally with it. So let's go. Great. Good to hear it. So uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, Who are you? What's your connection to uh, DSA? Uh, Well, my name is uh, Dennis O'Neill. I have been uh, a radical revolutionary socialist, whatever you want to call it, since... uh, Back sometime in the 1960s, I am currently a member of the New York City DSA. I'm a member of the labor branch, and when I get to attend the Bronx Upper Manhattan branch, it's a little hazy now because we're doing all these uh, blasted Zoom calls, but I try to make them when I can. Right, right. Yes, everything's a little topsy-turvy. So we have you here today on our uh, labor-focused edition of Revolutions Per Minute. So let's dig into that. Um, What's your uh, union affiliation? What do you do? Why are you here? Okay, I'm a a retired postal worker. I am a member of the American Postal Workers Union, to be specific, the New York Metro Area Postal Union, um, which is the New York branch of the APWU. The APWU is one of the two larger of the four postal workers unions, uh, which we have in this country. Sounds very European. It's a little difficult. makes it the organizing a bit harder not to have a single... um, uh, we would like, um, Amy, let's say one big union, at least in the damn post office. So, um, uh, we're, uh, uh, and, uh, as a retiree, I've worked on various projects, uh, stopping a privatization bid by Staples. We were collecting petition signatures along with folks from DSA. Um, especially the just, Racial Justice Working Group in the Bronx to bring postal banking back to the U.S., expand what the Postal Service does. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm now working with sort of an odd hoax collection of workers and retirees who are members of um, all four of the postal unions around the country, uh, basically trying to step in where the traditional union structures have not been able to uh, respond as quickly or as effectively and do some organizing. So Mm -hmm. that's what I'm working on now. And that means this is all something that has uh, grown up since uh, the Rona hit. So that's what we're on. 
Right. Well, well, let's start there. You know, as you alluded to in your comments there, that the Postal Service has and its workers have faced a variety of crises over the last uh, years. Um, but of course, we have this ongoing crisis right now of the COVID pandemic. So tell me a little bit about how that's affected postal workers specifically and what your organizing has done to try to counter it. Uh, pretty interesting, actually. We got started um, because uh, one of our members, a rural letter carrier, or not members, one of the people who I'm working with, we're not a formal group, it's ad hoc, uh, young dude from rural Tennessee, relatively early in the pandemic, saying, yikes, we want hazardous duty pay, we want uh, what we didn't know yet was called PPE, personal protective equipment, and so on. And this little petition ran itself up to about 80,000 signatures of postal workers and some supporters fairly quickly. So we started a, uh, a group just for postal workers, a Facebook group where people could sort of vent, uh, find out what people were concerned about and so on. And so we've been through a couple of phases. The first thing was to just sort of help people break down their isolation and feel like they're in it together, what to do, share information. Um, after a while, it became clear that the largest immediate, immediate threat to the Postal Service, and hence to postal workers' jobs, um, was that the Postal Service was and is running out of money. And the reason for that were sort of a pay-as-you-go You'll forgive me for using we in a number of different contexts. Um, I am using we for the U.S. Postal Service because I defend it. We're trying to, it's, a, uh, it's part of the commons, and mm -hmm. we want to keep that. But um, I am not identifying strongly with postal management. Uh, you know, I've got, you know, 25 years or more of experience in the Postal Service that says, don't do that. It doesn't work. So um, what we're doing is uh, what's, what's happening is um, mail volume has fallen off drastically. First class mail, some, you know, full price stamp letters, various forms of business mail, which is partly first class, but a lot is advertising mail. That's just cratered. It's off 50% and more. And we have picked up um a bunch of parcel business, as everybody on lockdown says, you know, whoops, no stores, you know, I, uh, ease of life and also I'm bored out of my skull. So I put them on and send them back or whatever right. thing right. is. So we have a huge increase in parcel volume. We are, uh, in the meantime, uh, our union fairly good leave, uh, what, what are called memorandums of understanding with, um, postal management, which makes it possible for people who are actually down with COVID-19, uh, have been exposed, have children who can't go to school or childcare or whatever because of it. All of this, there is, you know, a fairly generous amount of leave negotiated. And that was actually the second thing we worked on after just the, the virus itself is making sure that people understood what, how these things worked and what they did. And the unions were working on it. But the out-of-money thing became very serious very quickly. And in April, postal management said that 
the post office might run out of money by October. Okay. This is very serious. One, if it runs out of money, you have 600,000 plus workers with no paychecks. And two, you have no ability to conduct vote by mail in the middle of a pandemic. And um, uh, there are five states now which have sort of automatic vote by mail, right? Washington, Colorado, uh, I think California, and Utah. So not even all, quote, blue states, you know, right. Utah reliably returns their uh, mail ballots for, um, you know, Mormon conservative senators. It's how it works. Right. So, um, but that just came up um, relatively early when they started talking about it. We said, damn, you know, this is very serious. So at the same time, um, Trump uh, announced that the Postal Service is a joke and refused, said he refuses to countenance any aid to the post office. Um, so we are full focus for the last two months, the, this ad hoc crew that we're doing. However, we're trying to uh, walk on two legs. Um, I mean, it's not the second wave, it's the first wave, which is exploding because in a lot of states there was little or no lockdown, masking, anything. Right. Right. That can't help but affect postal workers. We are hearing by the day from around the country. You know, uh, a friend of mine uh, who's uh, a retiree but also an officer in the uh, Michigan APWU and is out of Detroit, um, has been to two memorial services in the last week for co-workers who have died. Get them out of the post office. We're trying to figure out how to assemble them. But we know it's over 75 have died and probably well into the four figures have um, either been formally diagnosed with or, you know, because testing is uneven, you know, have spent some trachea because um, they've had it. So that is coming back with a vengeance. And we're, you know, we're, we're grappling with that and trying to help people think through what their options are uh, if stuff happens where they're working. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're doing those two things. Uh, save our postal service, uh, make sure that there's funding, and, um, uh, you know, try and figure out how um, our coworkers can protect themselves. Right. You know, it's so interesting as you as you talk through this recent organizing that you've been doing, you realize how as soon as you take a hard look at any one specific thing, it actually relates to everything, right? It, it, what you're saying talks on, uh, touches on issues of workplace justice, racial justice, democracy, the structure of American society, et cetera. You know, we really could do a whole show, a whole series of shows just on, on postal workers here on uh, Revolutions Per Minute on 99.5 FM. Um, but given that we do only have a little bit of time in this show to, to discuss um, your work, I, I wondered as well if you could touch on the racial justice aspects of what you're doing. 
Obviously, when we're talking about the COVID pandemic, it's well documented that that's hitting black and brown people harder disproportionately because of uh, social factors. Um, but I'm wondering if there's any other connection that you see as uh, a union postal worker to our uprising for black lives. Absolutely. Um, and one of the things that uh, is not um, people don't necessarily realize because their exposure to the postal service tends to be with their the letter carrier for their route or maybe the people they see as a clerk in an office. The postal service has over 500,000 employees in the United States, even after some substantial downsizing. Something like 105,000 of them are African American. Mm -hmm. There are also substantial numbers of uh, of uh, Latinos and Asians. But the African American piece is super important because you know, going back to a time I live in Harlem. All right, up on Main Street, Harlem, USA, 125th Street. There were demonstrations going into the fifth 1950s. And in a couple of instances, even the early 1960s, which were boycotts of stores on 125th Street, because black workers weren't permitted to work there. They would gladly take the customer's money, but they couldn't, uh, they couldn't get a job. And so those boycotts were effective, and that was broken. But through that entire time, the Postal Service has always been run on a civil service test, high score, veterans points, you get hired. Mm -hmm. Now that's not to say there's not racism, that's not to say that people weren't forced out, that it wasn't hard, but um, a guy I know named Phil Rubio, a retired postal worker himself, wrote a book about this called Always Work in the Post Office. And the fact is, if you as we found doing stop staples work uh, uh, around the city and postal banking um, in the Bronx. If you go into any black community and you start talking to people, people always say, oh, yeah, my mother used to work in the post office. I got an uncle, you know. I, I did Christmas relief for a couple of years. It is probably more than any other single job in the country as a whole the mainstay of stable, working class, unionized, with benefits, with retirement, employment in the black community. It is massively important to the black community. So um, the effect that we're seeing right now of uh, the uneven effect of uh, the Rona on, on uh, the black community, especially in urban areas and now in the rural south, on, on Latinos, etc. I mean, the damage that would be done if the Postal Service actually did go down would be probably even more massive. Mm -hmm. Because we're talking, we're talking 104,000 people currently employed under, and, you know, other people who will be employed. You know, people go into these jobs. They're family jobs. I know people whose grandparents work and who are telling their kids, look, okay, college, yes, good. Take the postal test just in case, you know, right. just in case. And some of them do. Right. So. 
Well, thank you for illuminating, you know, how, how deeply these, these struggles are connected. And it, it sounds as though if we want to support black workers, as we do um, here on Revolutions Per Minute, as, as we'll be talking about through the second half of our show, it sounds like we need to save our postal service. So, Dennis, um, what do you have to offer to the listeners of Revolutions Per Minute for how they can follow your work and get involved? I would be glad to do that. Thank you for the leading question. I will add 30 seconds worth of another thing, which is a lot of postal workers are wearing um, T-shirts that say Black Lives Matter, not just African-American. There's some struggle with 500,000 people. We have Trump fans and stuff like that. But a lot of people are going into work with something like this. Nice. Them, et cetera. So um, that said, uh, we can use a lot of support. Um, there are various activities. We had one National Day of Action, which went quite well. Stuff 16 post offices in New York City alone, one in uh, Jersey City. Um, and uh, there were about 18 around the country that uh, are sort of informal group organized and maybe a dozen more that the American Postal Workers Union put together. Uh, and there will be more stuff like that coming up. The best place to find out about it is um, our Facebook page. If you're not on Facebook, I believe you can go there anyway and look at it. Facebook mm -hmm. is trying to open up for this stuff. It is um, Save Our Postal Service. Right. Very simple. There are a number of different options, but it's the one with a little sort of weird shield if you have different choices. And it's uh, a fairly comprehensive page. We have about 50, 300 people who are likers and a lot of people who show up every day. If you go there, you will find, you know, the occasional lighthearted cultural thing. You will have what the state of the struggle is nationally and, come, you know, you'll have calls to action and, um, uh, you know, things that you can do to help which there are a lot of, actually. You wouldn't think it, but there is stuff that you can do if you're on lockdown from the uh, miserable solitude of your own home. Or mm. maybe not miserable, but uh, it does get old. So, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Great. So we'll make sure that we've got a link to uh, that Facebook page in our show notes and, and those who are interested can can visit it for more um, information on the group, which is Save Our Postal Service. Um, Dennis, thank you so much again for, for speaking with me. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to, to leave our Revolutions Permitted audience with? Yeah, uh, I'm an old guy. I've been at this, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, fight the power line of work for, for, you know, about six decades now. And I got to say that this is probably the most interesting and exciting time that I have been through yet. And I'm including the late 60s, early 70s in that. Music isn't quite as good. But other than that, I mean, this is a great time to be alive, to be active, to be fighting. And you'll, if you pay attention, you'll live a very lively life of the mind, trying to figure out what the hell is going on. So I encourage uh, folks to not get too downhearted, not get too overcome by your immediate situation, but plunge into stuff. And in stuff, I would say, 
including supporting our postal service. Thank you. Great. Thank you. That was Amy Wilson with Dennis O'Neill, and you are tuning in to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. To connect with us after the show, you can email us at revolutionsnyc at gmail.com. You can find us on our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com, or on NYC DSA's site, um, or you can find us on Twitter at NYCRPM. You just heard from NYC DSA Labor Branch member Dennis O'Neill being interviewed by Revolutions Per Minute's Amy Wilson. And a few minutes, we'll be talking to NYC DSA organizer Robert Cuffey. But first, we are still in our summer fundraising drive. And at this time during the show, we want to one, acknowledge all the work that goes into keeping this station afloat and the need for funds to keep bringing you this content on the airwaves, the sort of the interviews you're hearing, like you just heard with uh, Dennis O'Neill from a postal worker who's fighting back against the privatization of the postal service, who's fighting for, you know, improving the, the working conditions, the wages of these postal workers. You're not going to hear that on your typical corporate media or even some uh, stations like NPR. You're not really going to dive in and hear the perspective of workers about the struggle for building working class power. That's what we're bringing you on Revolutions Per Minute on WBAI. So in this moment, we really want to specifically encourage you become a BAI buddy. It's very simple to do that. Just go to the website, WBAI.org. Scroll down. It will be kind of right there in the center. You can click that button, become a WBA buddy, fill out your information. Maybe Revolutions Per Minute is your favorite show. You want more content that, that we create. You want more of that on the airwaves. Well, you can signal that when you're signing up as a buddy that Revolutions Per Minute is the show that you want to sponsor. Right now, we don't have any specific premiums. We've got that in the works, so we're hoping to be announcing that within the next month or so. But before that uh, comes together right now, you can either get you get a tote bag, a membership card. If your annual contribution exceeds $25, you become a voting member of the WBAI community. That means you get to elect listener representatives to the local station board, which is the, the highest uh, body within the station that gets to really shape the direction, the future of WBAI and the Pacifica Radio Network as a whole. And because this is really crucial to us at Revolutions Per Minute because we are all about the community control of institutions. So again, that one way you can do that is going to WBAI.org, scroll down and click on the buddy option, signal that Revolutions Per Minute is the show you wanna sponsor, fill out your info, and now you're a BAI buddy. You're contributing every month you're now a someone who is able to elect representatives to the local station board. You are part of this working class media institution. But you know that's not the only way you can contribute to the station. You can go. To, you can also go to the website and give a one-time donation. Maybe you right now is not a good time for you to become a monthly uh, subscriber. You can't contribute. You don't know. You don't have a consistent funds coming in, but you still want to give some money to the station. Well, you can give a one-time donation. 
Again, if that's over 25 bucks for the year, then you become someone who has voting rights within the station. But if it's under that, you're still making a, a very solid contribution to the station and keep helping you know, keep this radio station and the community radio programs that it broadcasts alive. Or if you maybe don't like using the internet, you'd rather call in. So if you want to do it that way, give a call 516-620-3602. Again, that number is 516-620-3602. So this is, you know, this is a crucial time for working class media. You just were hearing from Dennis that this is an exciting time to be in the struggle. We have this uprising for black lives out in the street and we need working working class media institutions like WBAI in order to broadcast the struggle out on the airwaves. So now we're uh, we're joined by Robert Cuffey, a uh, NYC DSA organizer. Uh, Robert, can you hear me? I can hear you. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Robert. Before we dive into what we're kind of specifically getting into today with this uprising for black lives and its relationship to the labor movement, I just want to ask you, what's like, your experience in labor organizing? What forces propelled you to join the movement for socialism? And what role does an organization like the Democratic Socialists of America have in the struggle against racism? Um, well, I can say myself, I've been, um, though I'm only 34 going on 35, been doing this for about 14 to 15 years myself. And I first actually got involved after I was living in suburban Maryland and uh, going to school at Prince George's Community College there and had gotten involved in some campus activism with some friends. And one of my friends told me, well, you know, we have to go to D.C. for a rally because D.C. has all the great big rallies. And it just so turned out that in 2004, what we went to was something called the um, Million Worker March, right? So there I was at this rally um, as someone who kind of saw activism going through the images of like um, revolutionary leaders like Che Guevara and people from the Black Panther Party confronted with everyday working class people who themselves were saying, we have the power to change society. And that's where I first met some of the socialist groups uh, with whom I studied and became convinced of the need to have a socialist society. And to me, the intersection between um, workplace struggles and the struggle for justice uh, for victims and survivors of police brutality have always been a key intersection. And as a black working class person who's unionized myself, it's really the way in which they were meaningfully pushed together in my life was during the Black Lives Matter uprisings that started in 2014 and 2015 around the struggles for justice for Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Freddie Gray, and others. So I, I think you you hit on something that a lot of our guests have shared um, in their experience coming on the show, like their, the moment that they uh, were radicalized. For you, it's going back all the way to the, the mid-2000s and getting involved in this march. But the second thing you mentioned um, in, re in regards to the, the Black Lives Matter uprisings that not the ones that are happening right now, but five, six years ago were really a crucial moment for so many organizers that this was the time that they really first consistently hit the streets and started to develop an analysis that put together uh, the domination of capital and white supremacy. 
And what we've been seeing uh, over the past month and a half is just a, such an encouraging and widespread movement all across the United States. And it's not just been uh, marches, but we've also seen um, organized workers getting involved in specific ways, from tens of thousands of dock workers striking for black lives on the West Coast to here in New York, where uh, during the occupation at City Hall, construction workers showed up and made speeches and kind of drew this explicit connection between the struggle for black lives and the struggle for working class power. So what has your personal experience been out in the streets? And why are these demands that have arisen, uh, like the demand to defund the police, why is this and the longer term struggle to abolish the carceral state so central to building working class power? And what power does organized labor have to shift the balance of forces in this fight against racist state violence? Well, I would say, starting with my personal experiences, right, I've been a union member for over 12 years now. I work with the city's administration for children's services, and I'm a member of DC 37, local 371, the social service employees union. And having been a member of this union for many years, in many ways, I never participated in the life of it. For As someone who started this job in his early 20s, much like other workers, for me, we saw the union as a... Um, service instrument more than anything else, right? The union would be where you go to get your benefits for um, your eyeglasses and for dental and that type of thing. And I think it's very important the ways in which this uprising has um, turned that dynamic on its head and forced the unions and its leadership to actually take up their mantle as organizations of struggle and defense for the working class. And I think one of the most instructive examples is the fact that um, the head of the nationwide AFL-CIO, right, was actually on Fox News, of all outlets, a racist conservative outlet, talking about uh, how deplorable, reprehensible the violence of the protests that arose in Minneapolis were, um, only for that violence to be visited upon the AFL-CIO's office about a day or two later. And then all of a sudden, the AFL-CIO comes out and issues a statement, which sadly still has the stuff about it being reprehensible, the violence, but actually says, we don't care about buildings. What we care about is the struggle for lives and that uh, black people struggling for racial justice is part of working class life. So I think the intersection between the two is something um, the revolutionary CLR James pointed to a long time ago when he said that uh, the struggle uh, for black liberation kind of has an internal dynamic of its own insofar it's based in that part of the working class that is the most oppressed in the United States and people actually have less ties to the system, right? Um, black Americans have never fully been integrated into the black middle class, the extent to which um, Irish Americans or Italian Americans have. So we continue our daily lives and our daily realities is one which makes a demand like defund the police, not something in the air, but something very visceral for us. Because every time we step out onto the street, we have to have in the back of our minds that these people who are supposedly here to protect and serve can kill us at any instant. Yeah, there's there's no way to separate this like racism as some sort of abstract idea. It is the lived material reality for black people in this country. And I think I mean you you just made a number of really uh, 
crucial points in the, the way that this division, this racialized division in the working class has not been resolved, but rather has been exacerbated at the same time that Irish and Italian workers were integrated into the sort of dominant white culture and were accepted is a, a into the suburbs and into home ownership in a way that black Americans were excluded. And you brought up CRL James and uh, that this whole moment has also had me really thinking about another famous quote of his and that is uh, and this is related to your comment about the the reaction to the violence um, and he said when history is written as it ought to be written it is the moderation and the long patience of the masses at which men will wonder not their ferocity so maybe kind of expanding off of what you were discussing there the 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 escalation uh, of these protests and the way that's in some sense uh, there has been a de-escalation since the the first weekend in terms of the the protesters really uh, willing to go out and deal direct blows against uh, the police state as we saw like burning of cop cars and precincts um, how, what is a, a way that you think that organized labor could escalate this struggle um, in a way that maybe is distinct from the first weekend, but is still uh, something that uh, would put capital and the state on their back in the way that a um, peaceful march cannot. I would say um, two words, general strike. Um, and I don't say that to uh, be demagogic. I say that to highlight the fact that uh, what the power organized labor possesses and the power that the working class possesses is the power on which our society runs. Right? We're literally the fuel of it all. We wake up every day and we put our minds and bodies towards the operation of this society. But the circumstances are that we live in a society geared towards profit, not towards human need. So we don't have control over how our labor is um distributed and towards what end and one of the basic ways in which working class people have protested when conditions not just in the workplaces but also in our communities have reached a feverish pitch of exploitation and oppression is to withhold that labor and who better to organize it right than the organizations the unions which were built on such struggles and which retain the resources of the working class they collect our dues they have the list of members they can contact they're politically powerful organizations and what they need to do is follow the example of what the uh, longshore workers did when they uh, shut down the ports for eight hours for july um, for george floyd follow the example of uh, what the seiu union is doing on monday july 20th with a strike for black lives that is to say that not only are black working class people being murdered in the streets by the police, we're being murdered disproportionately by the COVID-19 pandemic, and we're being disproportionately affected by the existing economic crisis. So these triple crises happening in the capitalist system falls most disproportionately on the backs of working class people and 
in particular, the budgets that are being passed down are austerity budgets that are threatening layoffs of public sector workers. And I think it's important to contrast this historical moment with the moments in the 60s and 70s where black people uh, staged long, fierce uh, periods of protest and had to uh, fight against state violence as well. Because in reaction to those struggles, a pathway was actually opened up towards public sector jobs like the one I hold in the post office like Dennis was talking about and in transit in places like New York City. This time around, rather than any kind of material gains being offered towards working class people for this huge protest movement that has shifted national consciousness, we're being offered crumbs, peanuts, and symbolic gestures, and we're actually being offered cuts. So as we stand, uh, the budget passed that did not defund the NYPD also threatens a layoff of 22,000 public sector workers. Um, we're actually seeing, right, that this is why it's easy to get people to chant things like revolution is in the air, because what does a system have to offer you if you stand up and say, get your knee off my neck, stop killing people for being black, and A, the system continues to kill people, as was done with Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta, and B, instead of actually providing any material ways in which your daily life can change, the change they provide is one of further cuts to the services and jobs we need to continue to survive. I think that's a, a very fascinating point and something that uh, we really need to be interrogating seriously is that this, the inability of the ruling class at this moment to really offer serious reforms to the system is actually in a certain sense revealing their weakness, their, in, their inflexibility, and does, as I believe you were hinting at, open up perhaps um, an opportunity for a more revolutionary path towards change because the under the current circumstances, the, the political class, the, the ruling class capital is so unwilling to budge that they will only perpetually radicalize more and more people as they, uh, you know, fuel the flames of this struggle. And I think something that you were also hitting on is really, really important to note when looking at U.S. history and looking at the path forward for building working class power is that the American labor movement has been its strongest, has made its most gains when the struggles for working class power and for black lives have been unified. If whether it, we're talking about the the Civil War period where there were times and in Reconstruction where you actually had some efforts and real successes at breaking down the racialized division of labor in this country. Again, in the 30s with the CIO breaking from the AFL mode and organizing with black workers in these mass unionization drives in the factories or in the 60s. You've also had in those moments reactions to that in the and also ways that the racialized divisions of labor in the labor movement struck back to the advantage of capital and the state. And that's something that we have explored here in the past in Revolutions Per Minute and hope to continue to explore more in the future. But particularly in the circumstances that we're in now, you have, you know, you, you had the, uh, the protest able to push the AFL-CIO to make some more statements in support of the movement, but they are still protecting 
police unions at this moment? You've had some success on the local levels to push for uh, at in city uh, committees of the AFL-CIO to push out uh, cop unions, but it has not reached the national stage left yet. So how can labor organizers struggle against racism within unions that ultimately disempowers the labor movement as a whole? What are some examples where you see unions taking the lead in the anti-racist struggle in an encouraging way? And how can labor organizers push their unions and non-unionized workplaces to join the movement for black lives? Well, I think the job of the um, organizers and activists who want to be in the forefront of this struggle to fighting racial justice within and through the labor movement is one that recognizes the role, the leadership of our labor unions, and especially the historical leadership um, in the last few decades, has played, you know, and the role they play generally, mediating conflict between the working class and between the bosses. And in this role, their natural instinct is not one towards confrontation and fighting back. Their natural instinct is one towards compromise and facilitating discussion. And the way in which the struggle for black lives has kind of scuttled that temporarily, that even an organization as racist as the Sergeant Benevolence Association would come out to say, well, their president came out to say, oh, George Chauvin, who murdered, um, Officer Chauvin, who murdered George Floyd, he stained my badge, you know. So there's been a huge consciousness shift. And I think what remains to be seen is a shift in the actual behavior of the leadership of the unions. We've seen outstanding examples of rank-and-file workers like the bus drivers in New York City and Minneapolis who refused to transport arrested protesters, right? And then we saw their unions standing up against them. But very little are we seeing that these unions are, the leadership of the unions are taking meaningful action that not only cuts against um, police brutality and racism, but also involves the membership in a process that where working people discover a self of a sense of agency that we're the ones that both run society and who can shut it down. So I think there needs to be a perpetual challenge to the people who lead the unions to say, whose side are you on? And one of the ways in which that challenge needs to be taken right now is the challenge for the unions to not just sit back and swallow these austerity budgets that are coming down, but to actually fight back against them, to actually uh, deepen the democratic processes within the unions, right? I can tell you my union, for example, since COVID-19 hit, we haven't had any public meetings where people can voice their opinion. So there needs to be democratic mass meetings where people are able to do things like raise motions about the best way to go forward in the struggle. And there needs to be cohered within every union those uh people who want to fight back, right? And you don't necessarily have to be a radical, a socialist, or a Marxist to be part of this coalition. You just want to 
have your union do the thing it was built for, which is fight to protect your rights and the rights of the wider working class and community and oppressed people. And it actually starts with recognizing this kind of cleavage within the labor movement between the base of the movement and the people who get elected and live a life separate from us while claiming to represent us. Yeah, I, I, the the way that uh, many union leaders currently operate as essentially managers between labor and capital and function in this compromising way is really, really crucial to recognize. And I'm really happy that you raised that point and that a shift towards unions that are oriented around class struggle is so important for pushing forward both um, labor, the power of labor, and the struggle for black lives. And I think you've seen where there is a powerful rank and file movement, say, for example, in the Los Angeles or Chicago teachers union. You see a, more, a union playing a more active role in actually fighting back against austerity and fighting for black lives. And as I think we've just seen out in L.A., they're actually able to postpone the push to have students in classrooms in a very, very risky environment with coronavirus. This is because this L.A. union had a rank and file movement. They committed to struggle. They went out in the streets and struck last January, and they've continued to push forward against austerity and the struggle for working class power in a broad sense, rather than just crumbs for their specific workers. And I just want to remind our listeners that you are tuning in to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. To connect with us after the show, you can email us at revolutionsnyc at gmail.com. And you can find us on our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com, or on Twitter at NYCRPM. Right now, we are joined by Robert Cuffey talking about the struggle for black lives and the intersection that has with the American labor movement. So, Robert, we only have a few minutes left. So uh, before you go, I just want... Uh, you to let our our listeners know like how can they get involved in this struggle what what is needed to be done at this moment for people who want to engage in the fight for black lives and the struggle to build power in the american labor movement yeah i mean so i think the two things kind of happening are workplace actions and um actions in the street and hopefully we hope to bridge those in a meaningful way, right? But um, as we mentioned earlier in the show, I'm with the Democratic Socialists of America, and I'm with the uh, in New York City with the Labor Branch and the Afro-Socialist Caucus. So if anyone would like um, information about those organizations, they can go online um, to NYCDSA and uh, check out those organizations in a way to join up. And if people want to get involved in any of the upcoming protest movements, I'm also part of a coalition with the National People's Strike called the uh, Fight for Our Lives Coalition, NYC. And uh, we hold protests on th during the first week of every month and every other chance we get to highlight the ways in which COVID-19, um, the economic crisis and police terror are impacting working class and black life. So 
definitely jump into any other protests you see. The uh, Instagram page, Justice for George, is a great resource. It shows every protest happening across the boroughs, and ours are featured on there as well. And um, yeah, get involved because at the end of the day, one of the sad things this capitalist system does is separate us, um, you know, by race, by gender, but also a lot more um, intimately. They separate us by families by the houses we live in, and we're really atomized. And the thing this struggle does is give us a chance to be in touch with each other. So the best way to do that is through building organization. And there are many organizations like mine and others out there where you can uh, start this collective process of both healing and making the world a better place. Yeah, the solidarity that I've experienced through NYCDSA, my comrades, and being out there on the streets and fighting alongside people for black lives has, has really been life-changing for me personally and has helped break down this sort of individualism and atomization and alienation that you're referencing. So we, we just have a, a minute left, Robert, and I just want to thank you so much for joining us. Do you have any final thoughts, any, any knowledge you want to drop? on to our listeners um, I guess I'll end with what I've been ending with everywhere else which is a quote from the Guyanese revolutionary uh, Walter Rodney it has a lot of significance for uh, fighting back against um, the horrible genocidal conditions of COVID-19 where about 20,000 people in New York City uh, the majority of them black and Latino have been um, devastated and killed by COVID-19, but also for concepts of freedom, like we recently uh, celebrated um, on July 4th. And Rodney says that no one but the working class can liberate the working class. Anyone who tries to give you freedom as a gift is either trying to fool you or fool themselves. And most importantly, freedom is not a gift. Freedom is something you take. So justice for George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and making Black Lives Matter, fighting uh, against the police for defunding them and for a just society is something we have to do. We can't wait and ask for it to be handed down to us. That kind of freedom is something we definitely have to take. I can't think of a better way to end the show than on a Walter Rodney quote. So thank you so much, Robert, for joining us. Uh, I think you just summarize the this movement and the struggle for socialism perfectly thank you again for joining us and just thank all of our listeners for tuning in to revolutions per minute here on wbai we'll be back next week tuesday at 5 p.m on 99.5 fm and we will uh, see you on the streets and hopefully you hear us on the airwaves <laughs>